it's a place which has been a home for 1200 years in the middle of this extraordinary diachronic landscape and you can look back in time across the Iron Age Fort, the Bronze Age tumuli, and people have lived here since about four and a half thousand BC, but probably before. So it acts for me as an anchor in time and space, which has never been more important in this incredibly challenged world, which has stripped away everything that we thought mattered and asked us to rebuild it in a way that perhaps we need to rethink. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a journalist for nearly 20 years, most recently as the Home and Design Director at Departures Magazine. And this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel. All the elements of a well-lived life. Speaking of the well-lived life, my guest today is someone who knows a thing or two about doing it right. The Countess of Carnarvon. Lady Carnarvon, who was known as Fiona Aitken before she married Georgie Herbert, the 8th Earl of Carnarvon, is the public face and gracious host of Highclere Castle, a 17th century country house built on a 1,000-acre estate in southeast England. While the estate has a history going back more than 1,000 years, in the 21st century, you may know it more as the fictional home of the Earl of Grantham, a.k.a. Downton Abbey. Aside from running the massive estate, with all of its challenges and unique aspects, Lady Carnarvon is an author as well. Her latest book, From Rizzoli, is all about that well-lived life. Seasons at Highclere, gardening, growing, and cooking through the year at the real Downton Abbey. In the book, Lady Carnarvon takes you through the rhythms of life on the estate, from every possible angle, from recipes and gardening tips, to the art of entertaining. But what's most interesting to me is how these universal lessons are interwoven into the heritage and history of Highclere. From the animals raised, or the famed landscapes created by Capability Brown, to the herb garden originally started by medieval monks. I caught up with Lady Carnarvon from her very own podcasting studio at Highclere Castle to chat about the book, her favorite cocktail inside it, and what Americans love most about visiting the real Downton. And stick around to the very end for a very special Halloween ghost story. Well, I think everybody sees Highclere as Downton Abbey. That's one of the first associations and a house largely Victorian, which um, part of a TV series, in fact, one of the beating hearts and characters of it, which kind of was launched into the general population as Downton Abbey in 1912 when the Titanic sank. So in some ways, it's it seems probably quite modern. And yet, again, inside it is a much older home. And it's never been entirely demolished. It's just been transformed, adapted, recycled, upcycled, if you like, which is a really good way to look at it. And again, we're also trying to upcycle, recycle, use things widely, wisely in today's world. So the first written records are an Anglo-Saxon charter, which is dated 749 AD. And by some extraordinary reason at university, I studied Anglo-Saxon. So, <laughs> so wasn't that an amazing coincidence, thinking I'd have no use for my Anglo-Saxon. Anyway, it has been a joy to work my way through translating it, as others have done before, and thinking of the different meanings of it. And it outlines the fact there's a home in the middle of the estate, and it gives you the outline of the estate. You follow the Hunigweg, the honey way, and you go down to Stanisweson where there's a stone bridge. 
and you work your way around the estate and part of that is still the estate today. So I find that kind of magical, walking in steps, going for walks. And that's how I often think about the lives that we're leaving. It's a journey and a walk. I'm not quite sure where we're going, but let's enjoy each day. As much as living in a resplendent home such as High Clear sounds, it's not always a fairy tale. It's a full-time job where you're running a complex business without the vast sums of wealth one might expect. High Clear is part museum, part historic monument, part public park, and more. Not to mention exhibits on ancient Egypt due to the fifth Earl of Carnarvon's discovery of King Tut's tomb in 1922. High Clear is a place where leaks always need repairing, the animals need to be tended to, and thousands of tourists need to be invited and entertained. Did we mention the leaks? During the peak, uh, I mean, during before the pandemic, how many people would, would be keeping the, the estate running? Um, there's about 50 full and part-time guides, and they're still here. A wonderful gaggle of amazing women with a few very brave men, but mainly um, um, ladies. But they're also now from all ages, actually. We've got school students, so that's one part. There's the banqueting side, um, which is which gets shrinks to a small number of three or four team. And then, again, when we're open, like any other banqueting team, it will bring in another 20 youngsters, often their first job from college. It's, it has a great camaraderie, and I hope they have a lot of fun, and it's all about learning to turn up on time and um, <laughs> do anything they're asked and also think on their feet, and, and it's public-facing, and we all have to get on with each other. There's mm. the chefs. There's... Four chefs and a KP kitchen porter all the time. There's mm-hmm. some maintenance. There's four gardeners. There's half a dozen people on the farm, which isn't a lot, but the machines are now enormous. There's some estate people. There's an office team. Goodness knows what else there is. There's And there's various other few individuals round and about. There's some contract gardeners. And there's a little bit of press and marketing, but that's mainly me. That's the sort of size. It's hard to pin down, and somehow everyone finds their role. It's organic. <laughs> that covers everything. It's, it's a, it sounds like at least 150 people. The Something names like you need to keep, yeah. keep you know, in a, in a given year. Oh my god! There's um, the painters. There's Pat Withers and her team. Pat's been painting here for 60 years. Can't forget Pat and her husband Mike, and they have young Richard, who's in his 50s, who works with them. So there's Pat, Mike, and them, and then the electricians, the plumbers. Goodness me, and then there's the roofers who turn up on a regular basis because something's normally from a bust. <laughs> it, that is something you hear a lot about when you talk about anyone who who cares after a historic home. It's just the sheer maintenance of of you know one thing goes bad while other things are being repaired, and it's sort of like a constant. Sounds like a a constant of a revolution of a turning of a wheel as one thing breaks, something else is fixed, and so on and so on. It's a nonstop endeavor. Is that is I mean is it that is. just the biggest headache? Well, it, I don't think of it as a headache. I used to think I could achieve various things, and now I realise I'm not going to achieve. When you have to various things, there's no – I don't aim for perfection. I just aim to keep going, down, and I think that's <laughs> the best thing you can do. And I enjoy the process of keeping going, and then you understand about prioritising, which you begin to get pretty quickly because priorities and strategy are key – so however much I'd like to have a new cushion, the lead slates come first, because without them, you there's no point decorating inside. 
Or sometimes when I'm repairing a ceiling, um, I realize it's damp. Then, you know, you you figure when you've taken it down to put it back up again, it's damp because the, the roof above you has completely gone. So actually, it was quite good. I was thinking about decorating because then I found an entirely bust roof. Mm. And and then you've got possibly three layers which the water could come down, and it's extraordinary how destructive water is. So, I, but I've you know I've now got my map of the roof, which is jolly useful, and yeah. and I've improved my ladders up there. So when I go up there, I'm less likely. It's less scary, I frankly. I'm, I keep on working on less scary ladders, so that's quite good as well. Small victories, I guess. Yeah, they are. They're quite big victories, actually. <laughs> Before we return to Lady Carnarvon, a word from our sponsor, Fritz Hansen. In the design world, companies tend to celebrate anniversaries for just about anything. But the 150th anniversary of Danish design brand Fritz Hansen is truly something to admire. It all began in Copenhagen in 1872, when Fritz Hansen himself, a cabinet maker, opened a little business that would eventually supply furniture for some of the most important interiors in Denmark. And the rest, as they say, is history. From the industrial chic chairs of the 1930s, revolutionary at the time, to the elegant mid-century icons by the likes of Hans Wegner, Arne Jakobsen, and Finn Juhl, these works are crucial bookmarks in the history of 20th century design. Today, it's not just the company's values, Scandinavian simplicity, Danish sophistication, that remain eternal. Their products are eternally chic too, like the legendary egg chair by Arne Jakobsen, first designed in 1958. It's a lounger this grand tourist has spent oh so many hours in. To acquire your own piece of design history, visit fritzhansen.com. Lady Carnarvon, you've written so many books about High Clare before, its history and your life there. What inspired this new one uh, that has sort of an in-depth look based around the seasons? I think I'm. I was really interested as... Um, I've always loved the detail of nature, listening to the birdsong, walking amongst the grass, watching the seasons change. And I think for many of us, again, during the pandemic, it's something that more of us were more aware of. People watched, some people in the country, you know, were able to watch the grain being sown in the ground, watch it grow, you know, hear the birdsong even watch it being harvested, which normally you don't do because we've lost our connection to the cycles of the years. And it's, it's um, I think that to live well, it's listening to our bodies. We've sort of taken our, our imagination and our um, technical ability now has sort of left us, has almost taken us apart from what works well for our bodies rather than eating well to gain health and immunity we manufacture food and we manufacture pills and we manufacture light and we manufacture more heating and it actually takes us apart from the cycles and our bodies so I just wanted to not not lecture not do that but just look back and think we've lived quite well for several thousand years so can we look back and listen and look when you think about the seasons of of life there in in springtime eventually i just wanted that's how the book opens what most comes to your mind when you think about oh spring is coming what what sort of is the first thing that hits you about anticipating spring and high clear it's the joy of the little croci of the colors coming back 
from the grey skeletal trees to the to the promise of new life and to the hope. And it's those words that are entirely essential because without hope and promise of something coming forward, I mean, I think we'd all just stand still and give up. So, you know, there's there's humans are an amazing race with what we've achieved and what we've done and what we've how we've tried to adapt things to suit ourselves. But I just hope that people will enjoy the walk that I take them on through the seasons and the different sense it's the sense in the air as in the smells in the air it's the appeal of the animals and the grounds and then again it all comes back into the house so this is what makes us well and at the heart of us all is hospitality seeing people you know looking at someone three-dimensionally rather than just through zoom or i think i'm sure that zoom will stay with us because it's incredibly convenient and 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 good way to to share but on top of that, it's the three-dimensional meeting of people, which is wonderful. You understanding of the body language, of the moving, of the rhythms of the voice, which are better understood face-to-face as you see someone's face crack up with laughter or all those sorts of things. <laughs> and one of the things I loved reading about particularly were the animals on the estate and how spring is obviously a big time for, you know, new horses to be born and sheep to be sheared and all yeah. these kinds of things. And, and is is that something that you you like to to be a part of yourself? Like do you do you like to ride a lot or is that is that something that you kind of would like if I were there, I would probably rather leave it to somebody else. I'm not, I'm not the best with uh, horses and things like that, but is that something that you like to be a, a part of? Well, I've ridden all my life. So I'm very happy. And I've just been for a ride this morning, which was great. And, and I've known and been part of sheep and everything else, but has been part of my life, not pigs. They're, they're slightly newer, so, <laughs> but I do enjoy it. And it's completely magical. And if I have friends or if there's just people here, there is no greater treat than to go down to the lambing barns and watch lambs being born. It's, you know, you can spend hours there. It's complete. I think it's completely magical. Again, it's the hope of the promise of new life and watching animals go go through it and then how quickly they stand up it, it is I think phenomenal and then the horses are always born in the middle of the night and my coffee is ready to go to take up there and they need a bit of a hand and there's extraordinary long gangly legs and you <laughs> watch them trying to stand and you wonder why on earth God gave them such long legs <laughs> from the from the get-go it, it is it is the magic of new life. How many uh, foals are, are born each year? Well, not last year because we decided not to, you know, push, uh, stretch, stress ourselves and everybody else again because we'd have had to put them in when after COVID started. So sure. this uh, February or March, we have three um, brood mares in foals. So that'll be hopefully round about the same time because then the youngsters can kind of play together as they get older. Oh. And then there's... 1800 ewes so there's about 3000 lambs coming through oh, end dear. of March April which is amazing and then there's the pigs and I'm trying to have two farrowings a year as in two litters a year but um the pig you, when a pig wants to move you know it just goes and finds its mate so when that, <laughs> so when we've taken the young piglets away sometimes the sows just think okay i can smell arthur off we go and they just they just crash through the fences and go and say hello to him so i sometimes have more pigs than i think i'm gonna have but 
the whole thing is hilarious, really. Slightly chaotic, but that's life. <laughs> and uh, there's a, a little part of the book uh, that mentions uh, grapevines that you've yeah. been sort of bringing back to life and that they've just started to kind of finally sort of bear grapes. Um, was there a, a vintage in the past or just something that was grown by perhaps the, you know, what was the history of that? Are there any bottles or anything like that, that that still exist that you've been able to find? No, well, I think vines were grown here probably in Iron Age, Bronze Age and Roman times and definitely oh, no okay. bottles where that <laughs> exists. So not since there may have been some small um, vineyards since then, but what we've done is there was a huge walled garden built by Capability Brand in 1771 enormous and that's really just too large for a kitchen garden and I I found which I found in my research which was so lucky and realized there was a hundred gardeners so there's no way we were going to go back to that and then my husband had a brilliant idea of having a vineyard so we spent a year or two testing the soil looking for the frosts seeing if it was going to work thinking about it and then and my husband was still thinking about it, and I thought, oh, for goodness sake, let's get going. So so booked everyone to come in, and they, with some of the best experts, we've now got the most beautiful vineyard. And now I have um, um, two teams of volunteers who are going to come and collect, help me um, weed it on this coming Tuesday. So I just advertise on Instagram and Facebook, say anyone wants to come and help in return, you have tickets to the castle. So what a fun, I, I'm so happy. I'm so looking forward to seeing them. And the last team that I had were amazing. And it was just lovely meeting them. And we had a, had a great day. I produced croissants and water and stuff like that. And so we hung out and we did. So that is how I'm taking it forward. It's magic. And we're going to have some grapes to pick. And make some of the first bottles. So how exciting is that? How how when do you think you'll be able to finally produce enough to to get to that point? Well, this year we can collect some grapes. Um, it's the third year, and I think another two years before we drink it after that. And then it really on the fifth year, so two more years, when I mm. can then start to hopefully pick more grapes and produce in quantity. But um, what a great project! I am so happy. <laughs> I mean, you already have your own gin, uh, your own bottles of gin as well, which of course sounds both delicious and dangerous at the same time. To have this <laughs> at the ready at whenever you want. Um, how did that come about? We were um, thinking again of the link from grain to bottle, you know, grain to table. It's this connectivity, which um, is at the heart of our life here, and. Um, it was amazing. It was, an, it was an American guy who we didn't know at all. I was going to say we didn't know from Adam. And he sent an email to my husband who was in the grottiest office because his own office, the ceiling had fallen down. So I moved him out and moved him back again now. And, and my husband came down and said, he said, listen, look at this email. So he replied. And the man was, in fact, called Adam von Kutkins. <laughs> so Adam and Regina, his wife, came over, and they're from Connecticut, and they have just become great friends and colleagues. They were in distillery and distribution, so we're an American company. I'm really proud of an Anglo-American enterprise, the oldest mm. distillery, botanicals from Highclere. And, and I just think these joint enterprises again in this funny old world we're living in is is so cool and i'm really mm. proud of what we've achieved it took 
four years to get it together and nine months of tasting gin, Dan. Nine months just to oh, get it perfect. Poor soul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a great way to talk about the cocktails that are a big part of the book, which I, mm. I thought was – there was one especially that uses – uh, a marmalade that you can on site, um, <laughs> which was, is there one that you find, what, which one is your, your favorite? If you, if you had a long day and, and someone asked you to make, if they could make you a cocktail uh, from the book, which one would you pick? I think I included the lavender lady in it, which is just you did. delicious. Um, but Hanky Panky is such a cool name. So I had to put that one in there because you just laugh when you think about having it. There's so many, and I've just done a little cocktail booklet, which I'm kind of sending out with the gin as well. But it's it's just that moment in time when you stop. And I think those moments in time when we stop and sit and talk and take ourselves away from phones and social media and work are key. And somehow cocktails tell me to do that. And we had we created this virtual cocktail party um, last summer, going through summer 2020 into the autumn and Christmas. And we ended up creating the largest virtual cocktail party in the world, which was pretty cool from two people who were not really any good at FaceTiming and you know, um, Facebook streaming and Insta- Instagram streaming. And to start with, you know, we weren't sure what we were doing and we were in the library and some of our team had the phones the wrong way around. So luckily people who were watching blamed Facebook, whereas in fact it was all of us the wrong way up. But <laughs> But we've learned a lot from that, and it was quite fun. And we ended up taking a Shetland pony into the castle to the Christmas tree and just having some fun again, and it was well-received. So I'm proud of what we did. And during the course of that, my God, did I learn a lot about cocktails, researching them, thinking about them, putting them together. And and that was another really interesting learning curve. Before that, and I for- just drank them. <laughs> <laughs> and the, for the lavender cocktail is that from lavender grown on the estate absolutely it's just making yeah. lavender syrup so it is I, I like using we have a lot of elderflower here and lavender and and where you can it's it's actually nice to do things with your hands to take that through so so that is great so i have i've got a lot of elderflower cordial which i then break down into little um ice cubes and i stick them in the freezer which hopefully there's still some left and i carry on with that for a bit And when it when it comes to the summer, are you even able to take your own holiday away from High Clear, or is it something where you're just the uh, the summer is a high season, and so you you're you're stuck there? Is that as it? I wouldn't call it a seasonal business per se, (laughs) but I would say like it must be difficult just to kind of extricate yourself for a week or two. Is it? Well, it wasn't so difficult this year. We thought we we need to be here as our as our ship kind of finds all of its funny gears and. We kind of rock forward a wee bit. And mm. I think everyone who's here, and I'm sure there as well, we've all been, we're all quite tired. You know, we've all, it's been a long old haul for everybody in every business, wherever they live with it in the world. So we we are definitely here for the moment. And traveling is a little bit complicated. So that's where we are. And when it comes to these sort of summer picnics, one of the things that, um, to me is of course from Downton Abbey is always a part of it, but uh, the architectural follies that are on the grounds that always make this sort of amazing, sometimes a backdrop to these kind of outdoor picnics and things like that. So what do you, is there one in particular that you really love to, to spend time at or, or to do a picnic or anything like that? 
But the joy is having different ones. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what's the point of having a castle and fortress if you don't move around them all? So no, I like using different rooms and, and being more eccentric because I think we're we're known for that in this country. So we might as well hold ourselves up to be it. And I think I think that is fun. And you know, we would try to share what we really do with Downton Abbey and ask them to go out a little bit because it's quite a in the costume drama of Downton Abbey, you're obviously looking into the castle, into the sure. windows, into their lives. And I was just trying, I guess, with this book, just to look out a little bit. Mm. And obviously, you've um, some of them are familiar from Downton Abbey and others possibly less familiar. But that is just a joy. And I think all of us have found the pleasure in being outside, the pleasure of sitting around a fire pit. You don't have to be inside. It's, again, connecting with nature. And I think that comes strongly through to me from what has helped people through the pandemic, the walks, the noticing, the listening to the birds. And, and one thing that many people have, have done to sort of compensate during the pandemic is learning how to cook and, and, and connecting themselves with food even more, and especially the, the ingredients. In terms of all of the fruits and vegetables that you grow on the estate, is there one that stands out to you in terms of being especially good for cooking that you kind of really love to work with? I try to grow things which are less easy to buy in um, in supermarkets. Mm. And, you know, when I think I suggested when planting, you know, some orchard trees, if you've got a small garden, they don't take much space. But plant the ones that you can't necessarily always buy. Plant the damsons, plant the green gauges, plant a different sort of apple, you know, um, the ones that you can't get so much. And other than that, I think chard and Swiss chard and the spinach and equally well grow things which are easy like courgettes because it's nice having a nice result so something is there so you can pick it rather than something which may or may not work and you know with courgettes there's a great courgette and lemon soup which is just you know pan frying some onions and garlic and then the courgettes and then at the end you whiz it with some chicken stock and the zest of a lemon and you can't really go wrong with that. It's a really healthy soup and you've grown the courgettes in your garden and you get the courgettes or more or less grown a window box. They are so easy to grow. So it's just having having fun and trying it. It's amazing what you can do if you try. That's what that's my only approach to life. And I guess that would be also a great piece of advice for someone who has just had their own garden, which is essentially just do what you can't get at the supermarket, right? I mean, yeah. And then when it comes to you know fall and harvest time, you know one of the things that I I don't know why it surprised me so much, but the idea that you know you guys harvest your own oats and you sell your own livestock feed, I'm sure there must be at some point you have a your own personal background in 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 finance and things like that. Is that, you know, is running like a modern farm? Like, do you ever think like, oh gosh, this is this is from another century and wouldn't it, perhaps we should lease this land to a, a, a server farm instead, <laughs> a server farm of computers instead. I mean, like this idea of keeping the traditional aspects, what does that sort of mean to you? Because I just, anytime I talk to anybody who, who deals with working the land, it's quite difficult. It is a challenge because it's a challenge. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. And I think we all need to eat well. So I think it comes back to the fact that whatever else we do every day, we eat and drink. And without that, we're, we're not going to survive as a race on this planet. If you if a horse doesn't have grass to eat, it ain't going to survive. So it's better to have a holistic approach. And, you know, server farms, which you referred to, are huge consumers of energy. So they're one of our least green and most... Um, 
some of the worst things that you can do to increase carbon dioxide and global warming. So that would be the last thing I do. And actually, I'd rather not do that because I think there's other ways. You know, and I think we're going to have to find that server farms, which I think also require coldness to keep them cold or cool, cooling down. I'm, I'm kind of then then those need to be in um, further north parts of the world and. You know, maybe they need um, heat extraction to for energy, not electricity from a grid. So I think it's thinking in a broader fashion, not too narrowly about what we're doing. The, the fields here have grown food for a long time. There's very wide borders for nature. So it's there's few fences and there's a lot of trees, a lot of shrubby, a lot of options for animals. So it's up to them where they go. If a tree falls down, you leave it. If there's... Um, nettles and brambles. Well, that's fine. They're fine. There, we we don't have to walk everywhere. We don't have to take everything as a race. It's leaving a balance for nature and for us. So, and within the areas that we choose to farm, farming carefully and well. So, I definitely I'm not walking away from anything, and actually walking into more things with thought and care. And I think that's what it is. So, part of Seasons at High Clear is about treading lightly on this earth and showing stories of what we're trying to do. And when it comes to to winter, what is your favorite thing to do in in the winter months? Well, again, we adapt ourselves to the light and outside. So we we tend to be. Firstly, it's the animals. You know, it's breaking the ice. It's making sure they're okay, or they've got hay mm. or haylage. So we tend to make sure that we've covered the outside jobs between, say nine and three o'clock in the afternoon and then we slip our computer or inside admin jobs to later on because they can kind of wait but it's a time when if you prepare well in the winter the spring and summer go better so I plant Mm. from October to February um, because that's the best time to plant when everything's dormant so the farm is busy preparing sorting organizing and then resting because at the moment, you know, sometimes the farm, like other farms, are working till midnight or through the night if they can to collect the harvest. And thus, it's always been. If by some miracle you found yourself completely alone <laughs> at, at High Clear for a day and you wanted to to cook something from the book, what would you cook for yourself, do you think? I, I love risottos. It's one of my store-covered standbys. There's always risotto rice. There's always onions and garlic, and with that and some good parmesan, then you're away. So there's a lemon and aubergine one in the latest book, and that's quite a nice combination. And I think eggplants is what you call aubergine in America, but mm-hmm. it's such a it's a lovely kind of meaty, juicy vegetable, which is delicious. It's either that or or um sort of smoked haddock mornay, which is spinach and haddock and a delicious sauce and completely scrummy. Of course. Highclear has taken on a completely new dimension today as the onset location of Downton Abbey, which will return to screens with a new film, Downton Abbey, A New Era, that will open globally in March. With this spring being the first true traveling summer in our post-pandemic era, combined with the inevitable hype surrounding the movie, I wanted to ask Lady Carnarvon how she's preparing for yet another Yankee invasion. Uh, Lady Carnarvon, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask you about this new movie coming out, uh, the second uh, Downton Abbey movie. So tell me, are you prepared for all of the hordes of American tourists that are going to uh, come back to your shores? 
Well, I sort of think what might amuse people, because I just think it's about making people happy. So that's what I'm doing. And those that's what I think when I create different events. So, and I like offering different events because I think it's fun. This September, I'm doing something called The Magic of the Movies, mm. which I think next September with some Americans might be completely overrun because um, what I'm doing is I'm asking everyone to come as their favourite Danton character. I was trying to oh. do this, you know, before, um, but the pandemic stopped me for the last year. And um, and then I'm setting it with the cars and very much as per Danton. I've got a costume exhibition. And what I've done is I've written a little film script. So I'm oh. going to have a little set up and people can, those who wish, I'm, I'm going to just create little film scripts like they have and people can take part. I've got small speaking parts of quite a few people. And I just thought it'd be such fun. So I think things, I hope things like that might appeal to people. A little bit silly, a little bit fun and just feeling that part of what has been an anchor for many people to watch and re-watch during the pandemic times. But equally well, there's other, you know, more um, rose-specific, you know, go for a walking around the gardens and the midsummer tours and looking at the history of gardening or um, of Highclere Castle Festival, which we've got this year, which is next year. So there's many different ways of highlighting different moments in history, which can appeal to people as it's, it's completely their choice as they come. And I think books and podcasts and social media are, are also a, a really a good additional way to share. So I, I think we've all learned something about how we can have different experiences. I don't think you beat the real experience of actually being somewhere and walking down the drive. But I think there's other interim ways of slightly partaking of it. And uh, when when American tourists come to visit and they take a, a a large tour and as they're about to leave, what do you think? What what kind of feedback do you get that surprised them the most? Do you think? I don't know. I mean, I think people come. They used to come a little. Well, firstly, they used to come for Highclere Castle, and then they came for Downton Abbey. And now I think Highclere Castle has begun to insert itself amongst Downton Abbey. So there's two houses they're coming to see. I think many of them thoroughly enjoy the Egyptian exhibition and um, the connection with Tutankhamun. So that's sometimes a little bit of a surprise and have really enjoyed walking around the gardens. And Americans are wonderful. You love the gift shop. <laughs> <laughs> so we have too many tea towels this year, I have uh, to say. Uh, too many tea towels. Well, <laughs> bottles of gin. No, absolutely. Mm. Who doesn't love a good gift shop? Um <laughs> I get my one of my last my last question uh, for you uh, today is, you know, Highclere is one of these many historically significant uh, country estates that have to evolve to meet the times. Not too dissimilar to the the, the original themes mm. of Downton Abbey of World War One and and mm. how that life completely transformed after that period of time. Um, if you had to predict what Highclere would be like in a hundred years, um, what do you think it would be? If you talk to one of your your great 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 uh, grandson or granddaughter uh, about life at High Clear a hundred years from now, what would it be? I hope it would still be offering people a very special tour of the landscape and a sense of history. I'm sure there would be different ways of offering experiences, but at heart, it's about people and homes, friendship, and 
enjoying and curating an extraordinary landscape. And that's the thing that really matters to me, I think. Thank you to Lady Carnarvon and to her team for making this episode happen. You can learn more about the book and how to visit Highclere at highclearcastle.co.uk or pay a virtual call to the Lady's Own blog and podcast at ladycarnarvon.com. The editor of this episode is Stan Hall. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Grand Tourist. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. And before we go, as promised, here's a little spooky tale. Till next time. Are there any are there any ghosts of of uh, High Clear that are known? Well, I've certainly come across a few, and one actually was quite tricky. So I asked a, a priest from Westminster Abbey to come and bless him away because yeah. he did kind of slightly freak me out. I avoided it for a bit, but hope he's happier. He occasionally does come back. Um, oh but, dear! Um, Do you know who this person is? Well, I think I first saw him when my son was three or four years old. And we left the castle on a November day because I was going heading down to the back of the house to give my son Eddie some afternoon tea, you know. <laughs> and as we went down some stairs at the bottom, because the corridors are so long, I had a little um, motorized go-kart thingy, which I could plonk him into. He could then press the foot thing and I could push him. And as we turned through one old passageway door to go along a long passageway, I looked to my left. And a man was walking towards me. And given there was nobody else in the castle, um, we then um, carried on down the passageway. And I was trying to persuade my son to go faster. And this little thing was going, like this along there. And the, there was a dog. One of our dogs was the other side of some doors. And he was going barking madly. So I was pushing Eddie faster and faster. And as we got to the fire doors, anyway, this guy stopped following me. So he was little bit taller than I and wearing black with a sort of grey cravat. I couldn't really see much else. And actually, I didn't really want to stop, is the answer. And it turned out, the story goes, that not far from where I had seen this chap, um, a footman who had been having an affair with a nursery maid who had left her post and the Countess's baby probably died of cot death. No one's fault at all. But mm. there was a huge distress within the family and this chap, he um, lay down and slit his throat and committed suicide. Oh, dear. And so that's that might be where the, <laughs> the cravat comes in. Ah, well, no, I hadn't thought of that, actually. But I, he definitely has his head on his shoulders. But so there was I, a young countess, and he was coming back to see if I was doing okay. That's how I read the stories. It was just blessing him and wishing he was on his way. But, um, yeah, and there's been a couple of others. I was up in the top of the castle writing Season's book, and um, I've got a specific book book I write in different rooms so everything's there and I there was a huge crash from along the corridor and I knew I was the only one up there and actually I just thought I can't take all the ghosts on that particular evening sometimes it's fine and this time I thought hell no I'm taking my tea and doing a runner downstairs so I and the dogs fled which is completely pathetic other times I feel stronger and it's fine <laughs> uh, well at least your at least your ghosts have um a sense of style, at least. And, and they and also modesty. seem to stop here and there, which I also think is really important. They don't carry on walking. 